Revelation 22. Hear now the words of our Savior, the last words recorded from His lips. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I'm the root, I'm the descendant of David, the bright morning star. And the Spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who's thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life and without price. Now I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God's going to add to him the plagues described in it. And if anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy of this book, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. And so he concludes, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Would you join me as we pray? Father in heaven, you have spoken your final words to us. What a miracle that you, the almighty maker of heaven and earth, have spoken to we, your people. We're listening, Lord. Grant all who hear my voice ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart to understand your word. Do this, I pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. You may be seated. What would you like your last words to be? If you had the privilege to pin your own epitaph, what would you put on it? If you had the opportunity to plan your own funeral, what would you have said there? If you had the opportunity, which I, I guess you do, to write one final word, one final letter, final remarks to those whom you most love, what would those final words for you be? You see, last words tend to be lasting words. They convey the character of a man. They really communicate who you really are. Take, for example, if you read the Bible, the first time I ever read the story of the first deacon, Stephen, being martyred, stoned to death in Acts chapter 7, the words that came from his lips before he breathed his last, his final words struck me. I've never forgotten them. If you recall, Stephen cried out with his dying breath, don't hold this sin against them as these men were throwing rocks to kill him. Polycarp, probably a name you don't know, one of the early martyrs of the Christian church. Most presume him to be a disciple of the disciple John. Polycarp, upon his death, he was about to be burned alive before an audience. Burned alive. The final words that came out of his lips were these. Eighty-six years I followed him. 
Never once over those 86 years has God ever done me wrong. He's never injured me. How can I possibly now blaspheme my Lord and King? Last words tend to be lasting words. They convey the character of a man. These final words that you ever hear, they tend to be foundational, uh, fundamental words. They not only convey the character of a man, they really, they really capture the core convictions of a man. They, they demonstrate what's really important to him, particularly at the end. You guys at the Harris campus probably have not heard this story. I've shared it with our Mallard Creek campus many times. I have a dear friend, brother in Christ, my closest friend in college, a missionary, a man named Joel Tigreen, 36 years of age, five children, a precious wife. He died of cancer just three months ago after discovering stage four cancer out of the blue. No known health problems. Here were Joel's final words. And just wait till these hit you. We'll all see the king soon, Jesus, uh, Joel said. We'll all see the king soon. For me, I suspect very soon. Pray that God sends people to Turkey. Last words are lasting words. Final words are foundational words. And here we find the final words of our faith. The closing words of Christ the last and lasting words of our Lord. And what might you expect to find here? What words would you expect to come from our Savior's lips that convey who He really is and capture what's most important to Him? You might expect, as some in this room may, you might expect words of victory for what a way to end the Bible. You might expect something triumphant like Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15, which reads, the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. What a way to end it. Maybe if you are consumed, and this is a good thing, you're consumed with the holiness of God, maybe upon reflecting on his holiness, you might expect final words not of victory, but of vengeance. Don't trip over that word. Vengeance meaning he is a God of justice. And so you might expect the final words of Christ to be a declaration of his judgment on Satan, which we see in Revelation 20 and 21, Satan thrown into the lake of fire, and Jesus at last vindicated after all these years of being maligned. Maybe that might be a great way to end the book. But what we find in Revelation 22 and verse 16 and following, what we find here are stunning words, striking words, staggering. These are soul-stirring words we see. For what happens at the end of this Bible is the words of Christ build to a climax. They're climactic words, just as a symphony builds to a great crescendo, a great climax that brings all the themes and melodies of the symphony together and makes you feel like it's done, so too the symphony of Scripture builds to this great crescendo. These are culminating words, just like when you watch a film and the, the movie doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense until the closing scene and you have that aha moment and all the loose ends are pulled together and you're like, I get it now. It makes you want to watch the movie again because now you understand how it all worked. So too is this text. It brings all those loose ends together and shows us what's most important to our Lord. 
I want you to see that these words are not only climactic and culminating words, they are in fact clarifying words. They're like a great punctuation mark at the end of the Bible. You know, y'all can read, I trust, that when you read a sentence, it's the punctuation mark that helps you make sense of it all. So if a sentence ended with a comma, it's going to make you want something else. And I want you to know you are not going to find a comma at the end of this book. You do not leave Revelation 22 wondering, well, is that it? You're not going to find at the end of this book a question mark wondering, well, okay, so what's going to happen? I don't know how this is all going to work out. God didn't make it clear what's coming. You're not even going to find a period at the end of this book. One of those where, you know, a period ends a sentence kind of nonchalantly. It's just like, it's over. You're not going to read this book and be like, oh, that it? What you'll find is a glorious exclamation point punctuating all the Bible. You will find words that will stun you, stagger you, make you wonder at the glory that is to come. I want you to see that the words, the last and lasting words of our Lord, the closing words of Christ, the final words of our faith are nothing less than a summons, an appeal. These words are a call to us. For lack of a better word, Christ ends his revelation to us with an invitation, a call. And if I could summarize these verses in one little phrase, indeed, I would dare say you could summarize all the scripture building to this great crescendo, this final words, here, dear Hickory Grove, the final words of Christ to you this day, the call of Christ, the summons of our Savior is come to Jesus. Come to him. Come. I want you to see that the last words of our Lord are words of summons. Come. Now, if that doesn't strike you, if that doesn't stun you, stagger you, I, may I remind you who is uttering these final words to us. This is not just the grandfather Lord or the teddy bear Jesus. This is he who declared, I am the Alpha and I am the Omega. I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I'm the one who was, who is, who is to come. This is the one who utters these words. This is the one whom the writer of Hebrews says, upholds the universe by the word of his power. This is the one who the book of Revelation says all the 24 elders surround him and say worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive honor, glory, wisdom, strength, might, and blessing. This is the one whom Isaiah says is enthroned high and lifted up. up. The train of his robe fills the temple with glory and the seraphim surround him crying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. This is the God whose last and lasting words to you and to me are come to Jesus. I want you to see, indeed I pray you hear his voice this one final time as he utters in my judgment two final urgent words to us. So if you're taking notes, mark these two urgent words down. Number one, I pray you hear his final plea to you and to me. Look with me, if you will, at verse 16. It says, I, Jesus. It's the only time you see this in the Bible, where he declares, I, Jesus, am the one who's going to say and do everything else. Here's why those two words should strike us. He is in essence saying, 
I'm the one who's going to call you. In other words, it's not a preacher. It's not a pastor. It is Jesus himself calling you this day. I must do the calling. I must do this. He reiterates this in the sixth chapter of the book of John and 44th verse when he says, nobody can come to the Father unless he draws him. This is the work of our God. By the way, this is why we pray. This is why you, every time Clint Presley stands in this pulpit and rightly divides God's word to you, you ought to be praying in this room, pleading that God would do what only he can do to convict the hearts of men, to change the hearts of men, for no man has ever been saved by mere eloquence, but by the Spirit of the living God. I, Jesus, am the one who is calling you this day. And what I want you to see, indeed, I pray you hear his final plea, which in my judgment is fourfold. I'm going to slice this final plea up into four layers that I think will help all of us in this room chew on this plea together this morning. So if you're taking notes, mark these four layers to this final plea down. First, I want you to see his final plea is believe me. Believe me. Notice how he concludes verse 16. He says, I, Jesus, I've sent my angel to testify, which means to witness to you. Now, notice what he says next. I witness to you about these things. What are these things of which he speaks? Well, the things of which he speaks are all the ways everything is going to end. He is, in essence, describing how the world is going to conclude. These are the how, this is the things you care about, ultimate reality. And Jesus is saying, I have a testimony for you about how all this is going to work. Now, some of you skeptics in the room, which in a room this size, statistically, there's got to be dozens of you, you may be thinking, why should I listen to him? Because Jesus is one of many testimonies. So what that he says, I've got a testimony about how all these things are going to work up. Kyler, I live in a cacophony of gospels. I hear people tell me about how these things are going to end and work themselves out all the time. I live in a surround sound, as so to speak, of people who are pleading with me to believe them. Why should I believe Jesus? Why ought I not take, prefer rather, the zealous testimony of Muhammad and the religion of Islam? Or why shouldn't I just take the factual, empirical, verifiable testimony of materialism and secularism. That seems more along my lines. Why shouldn't I take that testimony? Or here's the more seductive one. Why shouldn't I just take the inclusive testimony of pluralism and of new ageism, which is the predominant ethos of the day? Why shouldn't I listen to Oprah and not I, Jesus? Why? Why should I believe him? And I believe Jesus preempts us in this text by giving us a reason why he ought to be believed. For Jesus says, in a way that might not strike you as abundantly clear, he says, I, Jesus, testify to you. And then he says, I am the root and the descendant of David. Now, when he says, I'm the root and the descendant of David, he is telling us something amazing. He is referencing the prophecy in Isaiah 11 and verse 1, and what he is doing is essentially saying this, I came before David, I'm the root of him, I am the source of David, and I came after him. I'm the son of David, I'm the descendant of David. I predated him, and I postdated him. 
I came before him. I came after him. Let's give a layman's uh, translation. I am God, eternally existent, the source of all things, including David, and I am God in the flesh, incarnate. I am the son of David. I came from the Davidic line. I came as a man, fully God, fully man. I am unlike any other prophet, any other guru, any other wise man. I am God himself. And if that isn't enough, he gives us one additional exclamation point by saying, not only am I the root and the descendant of David, I am the bright and morning star. That's referencing a prophecy from the crazy prophet Balaam in the book of Numbers and the 24th chapter. And what he is in essence saying when he says, I'm the bright morning star, is he's saying, I am the one who is going to bring a new day to you. There is healing rising in my wings. I am going to inaugurate a new world. I'm going to make all things new, as he says in the previous chapter. I am God. I am God in the flesh. And I am the one who is going to bring and dawn a new day for you. Believe me is his first plea, and I plead you would join him in, in believing his first plea. I, Jesus, am these things. I, Jesus, the root and the descendant and the bright and morning star. That's the first thing I want you to see. May you please, oh, I plead with Christ this day that you would believe him. May I turn your attention to a second layer of this plea? He doesn't just say, believe me. Secondly, he also bids, we cleave to him. For notice, if you will, of the beginning of verse 17. He says, the spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come, come, come. The cry of Christ and all of Christianity is encapsulated in this single simple word, come. Come. It means to follow. It means to leave and to cleave. Come. I want you to see the power of this plea. The power of its simplicity. Come. Erkomai. Come. You don't need an education to come. You don't need uh, experience and age to come. You don't need power and prestige to come. A child can do it. Indeed, Jesus himself said, let the little children come to me. God spoke to Noah and said, come into the ark, the ark of your salvation. He said to Zacchaeus, come down out of the tree. To all of his disciples, he said, come, follow me. Come. What a simple word. What a powerful word. His plea to you is simple and glorious, powerful as it is. Come. I want you to see not only the power of its simplicity, notice the power of its delivery, the delivery of this plea. For notice who is pleading. It is not just I, Jesus. In addition to Jesus, verse 17 says, the spirit and the bride join him in saying, come. The spirit, which is the Holy Spirit of God, the bride, which is the bride of Christ, the church, join in unison crying, come. I hope you know that every time a man stands behind this pulpit and proclaims God's word to you, he's never alone. There is always a spirit going before him, convicting the hearts of men. No man has ever been saved by mere eloquence or giftedness in preaching. It is but by the Spirit of God moving in this room. And the testimony, the witness of this bride, this church, 
is the gospel of Jesus, which Romans tells us is the power of God unto salvation. In other words, it's not me, and it's not you. It's the gospel proclaimed. There is power in those words because the Spirit of God is superintending, is coming through them, and is convicting the hearts of men. So see the power of this plea. Powerful in its simplicity, in its delivery. You probably aren't going to notice this in the English, but I want to draw your attention to the fact that it is also powerful in its authority. For that word come in the original language is also a command. You English teachers, it's an imperative. Even the word let, when he says let the one who hears say come, that too is a command. In other words, I just want you to feel this. This is not God the beggar pleading and hoping and crossing his fingers. This is the one who spoke the world into existence. He has spoken to you, and his command this day is come. This is he who commanded the wind and the waves to obey him. This is the God who says to you, indeed, who commands you this day, come. Feel the power of its authority, its delivery, its simplicity, and we would be remiss if we did not notice in that second half of this verse, there is also power in its urgency. For notice, there is one fourth voice. There's Jesus, the Spirit, there is the church, the bride, but there is one other who is saying come. And notice what it says. Let the one who hears say come. My friends, that's you and that's me. For all who hear and have tasted and seen the goodness of the gospel of Jesus are commanded, commissioned by Jesus himself to join this chorus and plead with Christ for lost sinners to come home. Come to Jesus is the cry and commission of this church. I pray you hear this day his final plea. Believe me and cleave to me. But there is a second part to this glorious verse, the 17th verse, that I think provides us a third layer to this plea. Not only ought we to believe and cleave to him, thirdly, we ought to receive him. For notice who he is pleading with. Who is he addressing? It says, let the one who is thirsty. Now let's talk about being thirsty. There is no desire more strong and agonizing than thirst. You can go a while without food. Uh, you can go a while without friends and family and loved ones. You can go a while without social interaction, but you cannot go long without water. There is no desire more strong, and if you have ever, probably most of us have not, but if you've ever been to the point of acute dehydration and you are just longing like a man in a desert, longing for this water, you are in essence a parable. You are one who has acute great need. And what Jesus is essentially saying is, I am pleading with you this day who see your need. Do you see your need? Are you thirsty? And if you are, I want you to see the glory of his offer to you in this room who feel most needy. First off, I want you to notice in this text that this is a desirable offer he gives us. For it says, let the one who desires take. Let the one who is thirsty and wants water. In other words, he's saying, my offer to you is something you want even if you don't realize it. I am offering to you this day great water. I am, as John uh, chapter 7 and verse 27 says, I am saying if you drink of this water, you will never thirst again. 
This is the water of life to which he offers you. It's a desirable offer. I want you to see, in addition to this, it is gloriously not just desirable. This offer, I mean, really, just look at this. It says, take, take, take the water. This is a passive offer. He's not saying, bring water with you. He's not saying, make water. He's saying, take, just come, receive it. You don't have to work for this. Just take it. It is given to you. It's a passive offer. I want you to see, in addition, this is an, a, a limitless, an unlimited offer. For he is offering you this day the water of life. That is a never-ending stream. It's not just a little bucket that you can empty and then get thirsty again. He who drinks of this water shall never thirst again. You can drink deeply from this river of water of life and experience eternal, everlasting, unending satisfaction in him. It is limitless, and thanks be to God, it's free. For he says, let he who takes of this water of life, who desires, I should say, of this water of life, take it, and what does he say? Pay me back later? Take it, and then come refill it later? He says, take it without price. He is not saying, let he who desires this water earn it. Let he who desires this water buy it. Let he who desires this water do a little ditty for me to get this water. He is saying, let he who desires it take it without price. Praise be to God, my friends. Hear his final plea. Believe me, cleave to me, receive me. And lastly, I want you to see the fourth layer to this plea. It, it's a change of tone. And let's just say it like this. He bids we heed him. Heed me. For notice the change of tune in verse 18. You notice that next word? He says, I warn everyone. And in particular, he warns us along a couple lines. He says, I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy, don't do two things. Don't add to the Bible and don't take away from the Bible. Now, why would the Lord say this? Well, I think the reason this is here is he is reminding us that whenever there is grace offered him, there's always the other side of a coin. There is always judgment on the other side. He is always warning us, don't presume upon the riches of my kindness, lest you adulterate my grace. I want you to see that my word is firstly, he says, enough for you. Don't add to it. It's sufficient. He's saying, this is all we need. We are not waiting for more prophecies. We're not waiting for a 67th book. We're not waiting for God to speak to us in our ears. God has given us all we need for life and godliness in this book. So don't expect more to it. Don't add to this book. And I think another layer implied here is don't add to my gospel. Don't think that verse 17 needs caveats. Don't say, Does who, he who desires, take of the water of life and then do a few things to earn it back. He is saying, don't buy the leaven of the Pharisees. Don't fall for the legalism of Judaism. Don't fall for Mormonism or Roman Catholicism in its explicit doctrine. I don't believe all Roman Catholics think this way, but the official doctrine would say Jesus plus. And I want you to see that my word is enough, Jesus says. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is the gospel of Jesus. Don't add to it. And then he also says, don't take away from it. My word is not only sufficient for you, my word is trustworthy for you. You need not do as the liberal Christians, and by liberal Christians, don't hear politics or Democratic Party, liberal Christians in that nomenclature, that means those who don't believe every word of the Bible to be true. It's a common used word. And by that, I want you to see, 
liberal Christianity takes this book and decides that there are certain parts that just need not be believed. They cut it up like Thomas Jefferson did. And he is saying, don't take away from this book. Now, I know I'm kind of preaching to the choir here since I trust most of us in this room hold up this book as the inerrant word of God. So let's get a little closer to home. He's not just saying, don't excuse this book. He is saying, dear church, don't ignore it. Man, conservative Christians who believe every word of this book ignore so many pages of it. And he is saying, you may claim you believe every word, but do you ignore it? That is what he calls not liberal Christianity, that's counterfeit Christianity. Which is why he says, it's kind of confusing, he says, if you take away from it, I'm going to take away your right to the tree of life. Kind of makes you think, oh, is he saying you can lose your salvation? I believe what he's implying here is, no, it's not that you're going to lose it, it's that you never had it. That's what you call a counterfeit Christian. You weren't real. If you are taking away or adding to the book, you are outside the bounds of faith. So he is saying, hear my final plea to you this day. Believe me, cleave to me, receive me, and heed me. Don't add to my book. It is sufficient for you. And don't take away from my book. It is trustworthy for you. But there are two verses still on the table. Two final words that shift gears just a bit. I want you to see that as this book concludes, he shifts from a plea to us to a precious promise to us. Indeed, I pray you hear with me this day, not just his final plea, hear, dear church, his final promise to you and to me. His final plea is punctuated with a promise, which is no surprise, there's some 7,500 promises in this book. In fact, the Bible begins with a promise in Genesis 3.15, where he promises one who will come. And now it ends with a promise of one who will come again. The Old Testament actually ends with a curse in the book of Malachi. Praise be to God, the New Testament does not. It ends with a precious promise of him coming again. I want you to see that what God does in these last two verses, it's something like a groom who on his wedding day takes his precious bride's hands into his. And with his two hands, he clasps her hands and makes a promise. And this is what God is doing in these last two verses. He is taking his two everlasting arms, grasping our hands and saying, I have twin promises for you that will sustain you. Here lies the first promise final promise, I should say, of God to his people. Firstly, he says, take heart. I'm coming again for you. I'm coming for you, he says. I'm coming for you. He says, surely I'm coming soon. That word surely means, trust me, this is going to happen. The first time we see this word surely is all the way back in Genesis 2, where he says, if you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, surely you will die. Just as sure as death follows sin, so too will Jesus come again. Surely, he says, trust me, I am coming again. And he says, I am not just coming again, I am coming soon. That means I am near. In other words, he's not saying necessarily that I would have come within five to ten years of writing this. He is saying there's nothing else that stands between me 
uh, between history and me coming again. The Bible does not promise anything else is going to transpire except he shall come again. This is the time on God's clock, but thanks be to God, though with him a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day, he will surely come again soon, which is why we ought to respond with John and say, Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen, he says, come, Lord Jesus, come. Take heart, my friends. His first hand is grasping yours, and he is saying, I am coming soon. But he takes his second hand, and he puts it underneath, and his second promise to us, glorious as it is, is not just that I'm coming again. He is saying, I'll carry you to the end. For notice the final words of the Bible. Notice who gets the final word. It's Jesus himself. It's not Satan. It's not sin. It's not rebellion. It's not cancer, divorce, miscarriage, mental illness. It's not politics and power and anything else over all creation. It is Jesus Christ himself who gets the final word. And his final word, no surprise to you and to me, is his favorite word. It is the word grace. Grace to you. Grace to you. Why grace? For I want you to see it was grace, it was by grace that God created the world. It was by grace that he saved Noah from the flood. It is by grace that he called Abraham the idolater to be the one through whom he would keep his promise. It was by grace he gave the people of Israel freedom from Egypt. It was by grace that he sent prophets to a stiff-necked people. It was by grace he prepared the way through John the Baptist. By grace, Jesus was born in the manger. By grace, Jesus died for our sins. By grace, he resurrected from the dead. It is by grace, my friends, that you you and I stand this day saved. It is by grace that we are sustained every day, and thanks be to God, it is by grace alone that we will one day be satisfied forevermore. Grace is the watchword of Christianity. It is Christ's final word to us. Take heart, my friends. Grace to you. I will carry you till the end. And so notice... And now the canon closes. There are no more words. The book is finished. We will not hear the words of our Lord. We will not hear his voice again till it is accompanied with the shout of an archangel and he comes in glory for his second coming. So now what? How, how then should we respond to this glory? His last words are lasting words. We see the heart of Christ at his center is that we might come to him. Now what? Oh, I plead that you would see that we cannot leave this book indifferent. We must respond with John and put this final word of the Bible in our hearts and our minds and in our lives. We must declare with John the great Aramaic word that goes culture and world all over. That great word is amen, which means yes, Lord, amen. Yes, Lord, I believe. Yes, Lord, I cleave to you. Yes, Lord, I receive you. Yes, Lord, I heed you. Amen, we should say with John. Amen. 
and yes, Lord, you are coming again. Yes, Lord, I believe that you will carry me to the end. Amen. Yes, Lord. We ought to say, dear church, amen, that God gets the final word. Would you join me as we pray? With your heads bowed as we go to the Lord in a time of commitment, his last and lasting word to you this day is that you would come to him. Many of you have heard this plea so many times, and perhaps this very day there is just something different about it. You can feel the call of Christ to you. Your amen, your response, your yes to the Lord this day is for you to turn from your sins and plead the blood of Jesus. In just a moment, we'll sing a song. And as we do, there'll be some pastors down here at the front who would love to talk and pray with you. You come. This is Christ calling you, not me. You come this day. But for most of us in this room, I trust, who have drinking from this water of life, who have tasted and seen that God is good, who have been satisfied by Him, we too must declare amen. And not with words, not with just a mere vocalization. We ought to declare with all of our being, amen, yes, Lord, by crying out in praise and repentance and pleading that God would move in your heart. And I pray you plead that God would move in my heart to be burdened with the urgency of eternity. Oh, may God so move in this church that we would be a lighthouse, a beacon for the gospel of Jesus. And we would join the cosmic chorus of Jesus, the bride, the spirit, and all of us in crying to a lost and dying world, come to Jesus. Father in heaven, we pray in Jesus' name that we would be found faithful. Move in this room now, I ask. And I pray that you would stir as only you can the hearts of your people. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would sense acutely the urgency of eternity and that we would glory in your last and lasting words. Come to Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand to your feet. And as we do, the call to you from Christ this day is you come.